0: Welcome to the Unpacked Podcast, a podcast devoted to unpacking faith, life and leadership. The goal to simplify big ideas for greater impact in everyday people like you and me. Well, welcome to episode number 15 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer, I'm your host, and I hope that this conversation today gives you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact in your life. Hey, I know a majority of you who listen to these podcasts, you're familiar with the Bible. At the least, you know that the Bible talks about this person named Jesus, which Christians regard him as like super important. Well, one of the things that is often overlooked when reading the Bible and understanding Jesus is that he lived in a very specific time in our world which had a whole lot of history, a whole lot of values and assumptions about life, faith and leadership and much of what we find in the New Testament are things that developed during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, things like Pharisees and synagogues and even including topics like the resurrection and the spiritual realm, they begin to emerge uh, in this time with heightened significance. Not to mention that nearly all of the debates that Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day, they stemmed from traditions that began in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And by knowing what happens in between your Bibles, historically, it allows you um, to read the New Testament through the first century eyes, through the disciples' eyes, and to help us enter this world is Dr. Tyler Stewart. Tyler is a scholar in the field of Second Temple Judaism, and he teaches regularly on these topics, and he is here to help us understand the backstory to the New Testament so that we can read it through Jesus' original disciples. Eyes. So, here's my interview with Tyler. Well, I am honored to have on our podcast, Doctor Tyler Stewart. Welcome, Tyler. Well, uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, Skyler. Well, Tyler, I um I first got to meet you, um, I think, in the fall of last year, as I took um, the Gospel of Matthew with you, which I just I absolutely enjoyed that class to its core. I think is probably one of my favorite classes that I've taken at Lincoln so far, so um, really good. Um, uh, Tyler, for those um, in our audience who are listening to this who don't know who you are, can you just kind of give a little bit of an introduction to yourself, you know, who you are, uh, maybe how did you come to faith, and what do you do, and, and how did you get into biblical scholarship?
1: Um, yeah, so that's, that's a lot. So, uh, like you said, my name is Tyler Stewart. Um, I teach at Lincoln Christian university. I teach new Testament in the seminary, uh, primarily. And then I teach also a bit in, um, his undergraduate school teaching, uh, new Testament courses as well. Um, I grew up out West in Phoenix area, suburbs of Phoenix. And, um, I didn't come from a home of, uh, you know, a deep well of faith. My, um, My dad is an immigrant from Scotland, and Mm -hmm. so he grew up in the Presbyterian Church, um, which is the Church of Scotland. Um, And my mom uh, grew up in Oregon, and she went to various Presbyterian Methodist churches. I did not enjoy going to church as a a kid, and my family was, um, you know, it was enough work to get us all to church that we didn't end up going very much. So I sort of come from a sort of nominally Christian background, my parents, who are wonderful and supportive parents. Um, you know, it just wasn't a big part of our lives. Um, and then when I was in high school, um, as, as these things often go, I met a girl that I liked and she went to church and so I started going to church with her. Um, and then, you know, through that process, I got connected with, um, some people that were very serious about following Jesus. And, um, and I just thought, wow, this is really incredible. I had several, uh, powerful experiences one of the most formative being every spring break uh, our group our church uh, group would take a trip to um uh different parts of mexico to with an organization called uh uh Casa por Cristo and we would um uh build houses for people who didn't have them and so it was a really formative experience in my life uh and so then by the time I was graduating high school I thought you know I really I think I want to maybe go be a pastor or something. Um, but I, I knew I wanted to go study the Bible and, um, and do ministry. So, uh, I, I packed up and headed to the Midwest and, I uh, have been here ever since. Uh, I miss Arizona greatly. I miss the West. I uh, would love to go back. Um, um, but, but I'm here now. So, uh, in the cornfields of Illinois, um, <laughs> So anyway, I, I went to college, and my Bible background growing up was such that when I told my dad my class schedule, we were talking on the phone or something, he said, oh, yeah, you know, these are my classes. And one of the classes at the time was um, the Acts of the Apostles. And I said, oh, I'm taking Acts. And he sort of said, oh, well, why are you taking a drama class? Um, so that was the extent of the Bible knowledge that I had growing up. Um, and so I just was re- always really fascinated by the Bible. Um my favorite classes as an undergraduate student were uh, Greek and Hebrew. And so I just was fascinated by the languages and the history and what was going on. And then I ended up coming from uh, my undergraduate school. I came to Lincoln and did an MBA at Lincoln and had a great experience. Um, Studied with Bob Lowry, a New Testament scholar, specializing in the book of Revelation. And um, then from there, I was also the whole time I was doing my, my, I was also um, uh, working in ministry at a church in Champaign Urbana which is about an hour and 20 minutes away from Lincoln um, and so we just had a had a great experience working with a, a team there my wife um, had her first uh, role as a children's pastor while she while we were at that church and she just um, flourished in that and is uh, just an incredible pastor and so it, it was a great experience. Uh, after I finished my MDiv, I really wanted to go to do PhD. Um, but uh, I had been, we had been continuously in school throughout our marriage. And so, and my wife referred to, um, the year after I graduated as the year of Margo, her name is Margot, And so we decided to take a year off and really think about, you know, is PhD something we really want to do? Um, and in that year, a lot of things happened in the church that changed and became clear to us, like, okay, one way or another, we need to do something different. Um, it's not a bad church or anything. It it was a great experience. It was just, you know, things were changing and we felt like it was time for us to do something else.
0: Mm.
1: So that's when we, um, you know, then I went, we, I had gotten into Marquette the year before and deferred my enrollment and then ended up going the next year. So um, then I went to Marquette, did my PhD there. It was an incredible experience. You know, I had professors who were uh, Jesuit priests. I had professors who were um, Jewish, um, you know, faithful uh, Jewish scholars, um, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox um, professors. um, And so uh, Anglican and Episcopalians. So a variety of, of people and experiences that was just it was just a, a great place to learn uh, biblical studies and theology. And then we went down to Texas for my wife. She was getting calls, seemed like, every month for, from large churches that were saying, hey, come be our children's pastor, come be our children's pastor. And uh, being a children's pastor pays more than being a PhD student. And so eventually uh, we did that. We got brought to Texas and um yeah and then um we around this uh well a, the, a job came open at lincoln as i was finishing my dissertation the year i was writing it and um for the two years i was writing it rather and uh yeah so the lincoln job came open and we applied for it and we've been back in the area now and we live in a little town near um urbana where we're part of a church plant now which has just been an incredible experience my wife is a children's pastor at the church plant uh, and I ha- uh, occasionally preach there um, and just am involved with uh, the church and leadership and uh, really try to do whatever they ask me to do that is feasible. Um, and yeah, so we have this really great harmonious uh, setting where I get to teach the New Testament, which is a dream come true. Um, and we are a part of a church that we love and, and we're um, passionate about and is doing great things in our community. So Yeah, that's uh, that's a bit of my story. Um, We have four kids, which is insane, um, but we we have fun. So um, it's uh, it's a good. It's um, we feel I feel really thankful and blessed to be able to do the things that I do and be where we're at. So
0: that's a lot of fun. Man, um, well, I I guess that's relative to, you know, what you think of education as being fun. To me, that sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) Um, So I guess kind of throughout your, I guess, academic pursuits, um, you know, Lincoln, Ozark, Marquette, uh, what was, I guess, one of the biggest discoveries that you made that kind of transformed how you read the New Testament?
1: So, yeah, it's hard to pick, it's hard to, for me to pinpoint one moment, but I feel like I'm in this constant process of learning and going, wow, I did not know that, or, you know, that's a helpful tool, um, and just being forced to, to come back again and rethink things and um, and be shaped by them. So I think those, those, I, if I had to pick a couple, would be, you know, the languages, then the sort of the interconnectedness of the Old and New Testaments, and then those just sort of the significance of the time, uh, literature and time period of, you know, what we would call second Temple Judaism from around 200 BC to 200 CE as being really crucial period for the formation of the new Testament and early Christianity. Um, those would be probably my biggest three.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I, you know, I, I think, uh, I can't speak for everybody, but it feels like there's a lot of, um, Christians that when you look at the New Testament times the um, right uh, the New Testament Old Testament this is this is our scripture right this is this is this is the Bible and we 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 believe it we hold it you know and so we're not you know questioning that but I think a lot of times we think that believers only had that you know what I mean not saying that they didn't doing, you know, that this is the only group of texts that existed at that time, and and that's not true, and you you see it as you begin to do some historical studies, um, that Jews and and Christians were writing quite a bit, you know, and um, trying to, uh, I guess in a way, write commentaries on the Old Testament text, and they they did it in in different ways, and Tyler, I kind of like um, move in that direction and and talk a little bit about that. I, I know for uh, I, I guess I've heard a lot of people say um, that between the period of Malachi, which is like the last Old Testament book we have in the Christian Bible, and Matthew write the first Gospel, uh, that between those times, people have referred to this as the a, a period of silence, like 400 years of silence. Um, in your opinion, is this is this a helpful way to think about um, the history between the Old and the New Testament?
1: Yeah, great question. I get I. I think this is a—it's a common way of talking about this clear gap in the the Christian canon, um, well, the sort of Protestant canon um, between uh, Malachi and Matthew as the four hundred years of silence, um, and that sort of speaks to the fact that, as an accident of the Protestant canon, there is a four hundred year gap. But we know and we have texts that were written in those in that in that time period. And those people who are writing didn't think they were writing in this time of silence. Um, And so many things in the New Testament that are uh, not just peripheral things, but crucial core things um, are things that are developed or uh, become significant, not just because they're in the Old Testament, um, but because of this this. Um, time period known as Second Temple Judaism. And it's called Second Temple because it's the reconstitution of the temple um, in the Persian period uh, during the time of Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, that the temple is rebuilt. Of course, if you've read Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, they they rebuild the temple, the the city of Jerusalem and the temple and they rededicate the temple. Um, And this is the second temple, right? The temple, not the Solomon temple, which is the first temple that gets destroyed by the Babylonians but the second temple that's rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah uh, and then is finally destroyed by the Romans in 70 um, 70 CE so it's during this period when the second temple is built that um, so much happens, so much is written and really not just so much is written but things that had been written earlier like um, like the Old Testament for example um, actually comes together right? and in many ways is, is um, sort of brought into a sort of body of text so it's not just that this is an important period for understanding the time of the new testament it's also a crucial period for understanding how we get the old testament as it exists today um and both in its textual form and canonical form so um you know just a crucial time period and then if you think about specific issues in the new testament uh i don't know resurrection for example kind of a big deal um read through the old testament not much on resurrection. I mean, you could argue Ezekiel 34, Daniel 12. Um, and, you know, that's about it. That's the, about the, the sort of end of the resurrection talk in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. Maybe you could squeeze, you know, Psalm 116 in there. Or Psalm 16, I mean. But um, it's just not, resurrection is not a major theme. Well, when does it become a major theme? In this second temple period, Jews start talking a lot about, okay, we see this injustice, we see that things are not going the way that God promised that they would go, but we also know that God is just and he will fulfill his promises to us. How is he going to do that? Well, it has to happen beyond our death, and it's going to happen in resurrection. And so you see resurrection becoming a major feature of Second Temple literature in the book of Watchers, in the book of Second Maccabees, um, in uh, lots of literature of this period, they really start talking about this idea of Jesus, or not Jesus? They they don't aren't talking about Jesus yet, but talking about how God is going to raise people from the dead. Um, other things, Pharisees. There's no Pharisees in the Old Testament. If you want to understand Pharisees, you've got to study Second Temple Judaism. Uh, Sadducees, similarly, not in the Old Testament. If you want to understand what a Sadducee is, you've got to start figuring out what's going on in um, in in the Second Temple period. Uh, and so there are, there's issue after issue. I mean, the three, you know, what is the most con, the most contentious issues? in the sort of the three big problems the church is wrestling with all throughout the new testament circumcision well circumcision is in the old testament but nobody's fighting about it it's not a fight until you get to the second temple period where they're really having to evaluate what does it really mean to be faithful as a um you know a follower of god who follows the god of abraham isaac and jacob as you're not just in the the land of israel as you have Jews spread out in Rome and in Egypt and all kinds of places. Uh, Sabbath. How do you observe the Sabbath uh, appropriately? Uh, Well, that whole debate is not in the Old Testament. The Old Testament just says observe the Sabbath. Well, if you want to know the debates about how people are talking about to do that, you have to start learning about Second Temple Judaism. And then the third one being food, right? Who can you eat with and what can you appropriately eat? Um, You know, yes, there's all kinds of things about purity in Leviticus, but the debates about how to faithfully follow leviticus in a time when there is no temple or where you don't have a temple down the street uh, all are revolving around these fights and discussions and comments that are happening in second temple judaism so so again as you begin to understand this literature you realize wow um, a lot of the same issues that are coming up in the new testament are crucial in second temple judaism and the New Testament is participating in a larger conversation. And so if we want to hear the New Testament in its sort of uh, full um, you know, resonance and volume about what it's saying, we have to understand all the other conversation partners and ways that the Old Testament is being discussed and interpreted uh, by other Jews around the same time. So, um, uh, yeah, that. Thinking So going back to your question about the 400 years of silence, thinking of that as as though God stopped communicating with his people after the book of Malachi, I think misconstrues how Jews of the New Testament era thought of God's communication. They did not think God had stopped communicating um, during that period. Um, And so it misconstrues their own thinking about it. And it misconstrues the simple fact that there's a whole lot of textual material that comes from that period. Um, And then the third part is that we only have an Old Testament at all because during that period, um, Jews were talking about how God was speaking through these set of texts. So um, it's just simply not true that this was a a period of silence on any level, uh, both how ancient people thought about it, how text production actually occurred during that period, and even if we sort of think more canonically and theologically, it simply isn't the case because we wouldn't have an Old Testament at all if during that time period Jews didn't think God had continued to communicate and speak to his people. Um, so it's it's a really common way of talking about it. And it, I think it speaks more to the fact that most people have no idea about this literature and this history than it does what actually was going on. Um, does that does that get a little bit at what you're what you're uh, talking about there. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I, you even think like um, studying, you know, studying the Second Temple period, it, it sets you up, um, you know, you, you you mentioned that it helps us understand not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, you know, how we, um, what we've, you know, inherited and how it's been interpreted, but you get into the New Testament and it and it sets everything up historically, to be able to understand the New Testament in their world, like if you don't understand it, you you will transport the New Testament, Jesus' his teachings, into a modern context, and so mm-hmm. you are asking questions the text was never designed to ask, you know. And so, the, understanding this history is so important because it it puts you in the mind of the disciples of these conversations, these debates that Jesus is having, you know, where, you know, if. If we're not there, we're thinking, you know, like this, you know, uh, argument I have with my girlfriend or, you know, a disagreement I have with my you know, boss or, or whatever and or these, you know, the uh, struggles we have today or these questions we're looking for today. And so it helps us understand. And in, in, in so I think I think that's helpful to realize that when we think about it as a year of silence, we we can tend to take that 400 years of history and then. Um, Throw it away and put our put our own assumptions there, and so, um, I, 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 yeah, I think that I think that's a, a lot of help. It's really helpful to to think about it like that. Um, Tyler, thinking about like, um, there's a lot uh, over the course of 400 years, a lot happens. Um, can you like kind of as much as you can? I know there's a lot of history there, but as much as you can, what are some of the major events and developments? Uh, that happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament that can help us be better readers, better students of the New testament
1: yeah it's a great question. I mean, like you said, there's a lot um and I actually in my in some of my courses, I try to have I have this huge chart of events that occur. And then I tried to get that down to like two pages so I could fit it on one page front and back. And then I forced myself to get it down to one page. And then I forced myself to highlight the things that I was going to actually test students on to say, you need to know, memorize this event. Um, And so it is, it is difficult, right? Because, you know, there are lots of it is important, but there are different significance of importance to those things. Um, I'm going to identify four or five things that i think are really important to know um but again i with the caveat the recognition that there's a lot more that could be said Uh, but the first one and um i think the most crucial thing uh, to begin with is the death of alexander the great in 323 bce now why is this such a big deal this happens in 323 um it's during the second temple period the reason this is a big deal is because alexander conquers most of the known world including palestine egypt And well into even into India. Um, The reason this matters is that when Alexander dies, he makes he says this sort of curious Greek phrase that gets interpreted to mean, to the strongest go the spoils. Um, Basically, meaning to his generals, at least how they interpret it is, all right, we're going to fight over Alexander's empire, and whatever we get, we get a rule over. And as a result of that event, for the next, uh, there are wars that happen from 323 to around 200 BCE. So um, there's, there's uh, or sorry, 323 to around 301 BCE. So for about 20 years, there are these wars going on mm. between these generals. When that all shakes out, the Egyptian king Ptolemy, he's, he's not Egyptian, but he, he's this general Ptolemy, uh, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, Ptolemy, beginning with a T, uh, sort of an odd name. Um, he's the general who gets, he's, he's, he basically sets himself up, his kingdom is in North Africa, in the city of Alexandria, Egypt, named after Alexander the Great. And so he, he rules, the, in his, his heirs rule what's called the Ptolemaic Empire, uh, and which includes, he gets rule over uh, what is modern, what is Israel, what is Palestine now, from 301 to 200 BCE. So this is significant because now you have all these Jews who are being ruled by a Greek ruler um, who lives in Egypt. And uh, during this time period, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, gets translated into Greek. Now that's a huge deal for a variety of reasons. It tells us, one, that there were enough people that were Jewish that they needed their, their sacred text. Translated in a new language. They didn't, they no longer either no longer knew or were no longer as conversant in Hebrew as they once were. And so that they, for them, their native language was Greek. And so they needed a, a text in their language. And Fascinatingly, around the time of b- before the New Testament um, is written, uh, Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish interpreter of the Old Testament, thinks of the Greek text as being divinely inspired as being, you know, just as inspired as the Hebrew text. Um, so, uh, and this of course is when you read the new Testament, uh, when the new Testament authors are citing the old Testament, you know, as Paul will say, just as it, just as it is written um, or the gospel writers, when they refer to something from the old Testament, it's nine times out of 10 coming from this Greek translation and not sort of them translating directly from Hebrew. In fact, probably all times in the new testament they're using just greek text uh, the the septuagint text is what it's called it's called this i can tell you why it's septuagint if you're interested but it's a longer story than we have time for um i teach a whole class on the septuagint so forgive me um so, so the death of alexander the the, the rule of Tol- the ptolemaic empire that then around 200 the seleucids uh who seleucus uh is this other general um, who is over what we now think of as like, um, as like Turkey and into um, uh, like Iran and Iraq. Uh, this uh, Seleucus, uh the Seleucid empire then takes over and they take Palestine back from uh, the Ptolemies—they have this war. They're constantly fighting, right? The, the generals and the sons of the generals are constantly fighting for the same land. Well, from 200 to around 167, the Seleucids rule the the sort of the area that is Palestine, that is Israel. Um, and then this is where, during this time, um, the Jews are having big conversations about, you know, what does it mean to be faithful Israelite? What does it mean to follow God? Um, when, you know, we're we're scattered all over. There are some in in Egypt. There are some that are speaking Greek. There are some in in, uh, Asia Minor, in Turkey, and all of these areas. They're kind of spread all over the the known world at that time. And then after the Salute, one Seleucid general comes up and he decides, and the history here is very fuzzy. um, We don't know what his motive is entirely, but he outlaws obedience to the Jewish law. Uh, around 167 and as a result of that there's this revolt it's called the maccabean revolt led by uh, a man named judas maccabeus and we think maccabeus means something like the hammer so his name was judas the hammer um and his what's that it's a good name (laughs) it's a good name that's right um he he is basically kind of like a freedom fighter who's and that's probably you know, not exactly the right way to put it, but he he fights for the Jewish law. He sort of styles himself as a soldier like Phineas from Numbers and is like fighting on def- to defend obedience to the law against idolatry and sin and evil and all this stuff. You know, he's a good guy. Anyway, that then from, they rededicate the temple and from around 163 to 63 BCE, uh, the Jews have their own empire. They have what's called the Hasmonean dynasty. These are the heirs of Judas Maccabeus, his brothers and his brother's sons. Um, and then around 63 BCE, the Romans take over. General Pompey, this Roman general who just happens to be fighting a skirmish in the area, hears that there's infighting in the Hasmonean dynasty. And so he decides he's going to come in and resolve the issue. And from 63 onward, then the Romans are over uh they have a, a series of client kings including herod the great and then ultimately they say you know what these client kings aren't working out we're going to put our own people in and that's when you have uh in six BCE or six CE, sorry um finally they install direct roman governors including eventually pontius pilate so um to sort of understand the various people that are ruling over Judea and the events that happen, the translation of the Old, uh, Old Testament into Greek being a crucial event, uh, the the Hasmonean, the Hasmonean Revolt, the Maccabean re- Revolt, excuse me, and then the Hasmonean Dynasty, all set up the social, political events that are going to happen during the time of Jesus. Um, and again, things that happen in the New Testament cannot be understood without uh, sort of knowing how these things develop and the history that comes along. So um those those let's see i guess so death of alexander ptolemaic rule seleucid rule has money dynasty roman rule so that's five things uh that i think really generally really important to understand how we get uh the history of what's going on in the new testament uh why the romans matter for example uh, in the New testament is because they're the most recent people to take over and not only do they take over but they took over the only Jewish ruling dynasty uh, since before the first exile mm. all the way back uh, before the Babylonians and Assyrians. Um, so um, you can understand why they would be particularly disliked um, during that time period. So there's a lot, again, a lot more we could say, but I think those events and uh, are, are really crucial for thinking about how, what's going on in New Testament. There's a lovely book, by Warren Carter called seven events that shaped the new Testament world. Um, And he sort of, I think he included several of these in that book. um, That is sort of a helpful, helpful way to think about big picture things that matter for reading the new Testament.
0: Mm. Now, Tyler, um, when you, when I, when you look at, I guess the kind of history and I mean, you have all of these different, uh, Jewish groups that kind of um, in the New Testament, like they're not in the Old Testament right, we don't have anything with Pharisees like you said Sadducees, um, but then we have this mysterious group that's called the Essenes that you know, that it's not in the Bible but Josephus and these other Jewish writers talk about but um, did, did that kind of I guess um, sprout out of the Hasmonean dynasty and I guess like how did, how did we get all these different Jewish groups, like, is that, that's obviously rooted in the history. Like, can you do, you, do you have time to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So one of the really fascinating things is we don't know.
0: <laughs> so in the case of the Pharisees,
1: um, there, there is a group uh, mentioned in second in the Maccabean literature. These, these are first and second Maccabees, which provide the history of the Maccabean revolts. Um, and what's interesting is they're both related to the Maccabean Revolts, but they also don't totally agree. And Josephus is another source who's talking about, he, has, he covers in his Antiquities the same time period. And in Josephus, his account doesn't always align with the Maccabean accounts. So you're sort of left wondering like, okay, what, what happened here and, and, and why? Um, so we sort of have conflicting reports. Um, so it's a bit fuzzy, uh, and and often we don't get sort of the history of like where these different groups come from. We know this is when they start. Our first reference, for example, to the Pharisees is in Josephus, who's telling us sort of how during the one of the Hasmonean rulers reign, there was like a lot of fights between the Pharisees and the, um, the Hasmonean ruler. But they don't tell us like where the Pharisees started or, or what their origin story is. Um, we think, uh, so Pharisee seems very similar to the word for set, set apart or separate. So we, we think this was a movement that was devoted to holiness or separation from, uh, regular practices. Uh, and that reflects what we see in the gospels and other sources, but we don't exactly know sort of like the first person that came along and said, you know, Hey, I'm a Pharisee, uh, and come, let's like start our own thing. And, and sort of what was the, what was the, sort of key event that started that as a, as a movement within Judaism. The Sadducees, similarly, we don't have like one particular event. We, we think that probably it comes from, there is mention in, in the Bible, uh, the Zadok, who was a priest um, during the time of David. And then there, he had uh, Zadokites. So this is a group of priests within the Levitical line that is much talked about in the book of Ezekiel. And so the Zadokites are a group of priests who have issue with uh, other groups of priests. And according to Ezekiel in the restored temple, uh, only the Zadokite priests can serve. So this became a very powerful and influential group, the Zadokites. And that's probably the source of where we get the term uh, Sadducee, something like a Zadokite or something, something like a Zadokite. And they show up also in these Essene documents. Um, Well, what we think are Essene documents. The Essenes um, is a group that is mentioned by Philo of Alexandria, this Jewish author who says he knows this group called the Essenes. They're also mentioned by Pliny the Elder in his natural history. He he travels the known world at the time, and and he talks about near the Dead Sea. There's this group um, of sort of philosopher monks uh, is probably the best analogy, and Pliny calls them the Essenes. Um, that most scholars think when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, this group of scrolls located near the Dead Sea in uh, these Qumran caves is what they're called, think that the group that made those books or made some of those books and at least kept the library there was an Essene community. Now there's a lot of debate. Some people think, you know, there's nothing in the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves that says, Hey, we're Essenes. You know, that's who we are. Um, so what they're, what scholars and historians are doing there is they're saying, well, there's this group mentioned by Josephus, by Philo, by Pliny called the Essenes, who we know were really into reading books and they were kind of their own monastic community in, in a sense. Monastic, in, in quotes, monasticism doesn't exist at this time. It's, that's a Christian development later, but we'll, we'll, as an analogy, they, they're a group that studies together. And these texts reflect similar concerns like uh, maybe not being married, you know, they're in, in some of the Dead Sea Scroll documents. There's talk about sort of giving up um, your property to the group. And um, that might reflect some things that are going on in the Dead Sea Scroll text as well as in Josephus. So what's going on is they're matching up what Josephus, Pliny, and Philo are saying with what we see in these Dead Sea Scrolls text. This is called the Essene Hypothesis. And I would say that's the dominant paradigm for understanding what we end up as the, as the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are several scholars who are very smart, prominent scholars who don't think that that's the case. But I would say the, the, the majority opinion right now in scholarship is that the people who, who kept the Dead Sea Scrolls library, um, were Essenes. They were the, the group that Josephus calls Essenes, the group that Philo calls Essenes, the group that, um, the group that, uh, uh, Pliny calls Essenes, and their break from uh, the why they go out into the desert and start this community where they read their sacred text apart from the the normal Jewish temple probably reflects some fight among priestly groups, hmm. right? That there there is in these Dead Sea Scroll texts lots of talk about um, the um, uh, the wicked priest who you know, misleads and leads everyone astray. And in contrast to the wicked priest, there's the teacher of righteousness. So um, probably the origin of that group goes back to some fight over proper interpretation of priestly duties in the temple. And um, that then, you know, it's sort of like the old joke is like... uh, the, the worst fights are not between sort of Baptists and Methodists, but two different Baptist groups, right? Or two different uh, mm. two different groups of the same stripe, right? Well, you you interpret this the wrong way. And so it looks like the Essene community is a priestly group that has split off from other priestly groups and kind of gone their own way. Um, so yeah, th- these are some of the groups that show up in the New Testament that are mentioned. Joan Taylor, who's a very good uh, New Testament scholar, has argued I don't know that very many people have followed her, and I don't think I buy this necessarily, but she has argued that the the group that Mark mentions as the Herodians are actually Essenes. Um, so she argues that they are in fact mentioned in the Bible, but they're just called something else. Um, so so yeah, at the very least, these are all re- very relevant issues for reading the New Testament. Many scholars for a long time thought, John the Baptist, for example, had come from or had spent time in the Essene community because of the way he acts, uh, is very similar to some things that are described in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, um, a very helpful book on that community is um, James Vanderkam's Dead Sea Scrolls Today, which is a bit of an older book now, but it's still a very helpful kind of introduction that tells the whole story of how the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and, and why they matter today, what, what's in them. So,
0: Man, so when Jesus steps on the scene, uh, it uh, it's a pretty divisive <laughs> um, era, you know, with the political issues going on with Rome and what has been in the history. Um, and then you have these infighting that's taking place. And like when I when I first read the New Testament, I'm thinking, you know, the Jews, and then you have uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're all in agreement. Um, they all get along, you know, but it's, it's the opposite, you know. It's like it's almost like the only time they unify is against Jesus. Um, that's like the only thing they could really agree on. <laughs> Kill him, right? He's he's disturbing this whole thing we have going for ourselves. And um, of course, you know, Jesus um, made him mad a couple times. But is there, um, Tyler? Is there any like kind of looking at that? Is there one thing that you would say if you don't understand this? Um, development or thing that took place, you're going to have a really hard time reading the New Testament and understanding it in its context.
1: That's a great question. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's one, I mean, the biggest thing um, that I would push on is to say, the less, you know, the less, you know, uh, which seems simple and maybe not that helpful. Right. But uh, the simple, one of the things I always tell my students, undergraduate students, especially is the Bible didn't fall out of the sky right? Jesus didn't fall out of the sky. Um, He is embedded in a particular time, place, culture, history. And so the more you know about that time, place, culture, history, the more you're going to understand what Jesus is talking about, why he's saying the things that he says. Now, of course, I believe that what Jesus said has significance beyond just his time, culture, place. Um, But I don't think it can be understood without it. Uh, that that you so I don't think there's one thing that I can say well if you get this then you'll get everything Um, but I also accept to say that it didn't fall out of the sky so the more you can know about that time place culture history um, the more you're gonna the better you're gonna understand the New Testament I'm learning stuff all the time I'm not an expert in archaeology for example Uh, But I know archaeology can be a really helpful tool for reading and understanding the New Testament. I've been to Israel. I've seen a lot of these sites. Uh, But there's just a lot more to learn about how do we, you know, how do we appropriately reconstruct, um, you know, what we know about ancient architecture, ancient layouts of cities, ancient things that reflect um, what was going on. I and mean, I remember being in Jerusalem a few years ago and just being so struck by the fact that the city itself, especially the old city, is not that big. You know, you talk about Jesus walking around Jerusalem and going here and there to these, you know, to um, especially on the night that he's betrayed. And you can be, you can see the Mount of Olives from where he's probably being held, where we think he may have been held in these sort of uh, tombs, you know, so or not tombs, but in these this sort of underground prisons. So, um, you just sort of get a sense of like, wow, when you're on the ground and you can see this, it's a much richer, fuller picture. It's the difference between seeing something in, you know, sort of staticky black and white to full, you know, color to three-dimensional reality. Um, you, you, you can understand the gospel and the Bible in a basic sense without knowing all of that, but you're going to have a much less clear picture, um, and a much Poorer understanding if you don't know a lot about it. Um, now I know that everyone can't uh, doesn't have the time or uh, interest or ability necessarily to understand all of those things. But um, I think that the more you can you can learn about that time period, including the language, culture, history, just the better you're going to understand it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I can't point to one thing. Uh, although I wish I could, but there's no silver bullet to learning the history. It's just you have to take the time to do it. Um, so, yeah, it's a good question. I'm just I, I I'm afraid I don't have a very good answer.
0: Well, Tyler, that's really good. And uh, I imagine this is going to be um, a lot of information uh, for those listening, uh, just to kind of process it. And I know some of this is going to be really challenging for uh, for quite a number of um, you know Christians who who may not even have realized that there's actually writings uh, between that that can help us understand um, the new te- the world of the New Testament and so so anyways you know and for me personally like I've been reading through some of the books that you've kind of suggested to me and they've been they've been helpful for me and I mean even this conversation. The way that you kind of just lined up all the history i, I couldn't even pronounce you know half of the rulers <laughs> so that's but you know like that the way you line that up has helped me immensely understand just kind of the um almost you could almost feel like there's a lot of tension when you arrive to the new testament mm-hmm. there is a lot of tension there's a lot of expectation for god to do something mm-hmm. and um so anyways uh, Tyler, I, man, I really appreciate you taking um, some time out of your day just to uh, help us enter into the world of the New Testament. So uh, thanks so much, man. Thanks for your um, your work. I thank you so much for the class on Matthew where I got to uh, get to know you, and uh, um, you've helped me able to help shape my my thoughts um, on the New Testament and the gospel. So thanks, man.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Skylar, and I'm really glad that you're Uh, making this resource available for your uh for for all of us for people that have podcasts which is everyone now apparently um but um but yeah i really really appreciate you and the work you're doing and i'm thankful that this is helpful i mean that's my biggest goal is uh to do something that actually helps people understand the bible better and uh, the new testament um so yeah thanks for having me and um uh, thank you, Skylar, and uh, I'm. Uh, I will. We'll, we'll see each other before too long. I'm
0: sure. All right. All right. Look forward to it, man. So I wasn't kidding when I said uh, he helped me pronounce many of the rulers' names. Uh, but in all honesty, there was a lot packed into those. Uh, few moments that we had. Uh, If you want to go back and refresh yourself on some of the points that uh, he brought up in our podcast, you can by going to our show notes. I've also put some of the links uh, to some of the recommended resources that he um, suggested to be be able to dig deeper into these topics. Uh, Next week, I am really excited to tell you my guest. My guest next week is Tremper Longman III, uh, who is a renowned Old Testament scholar. Uh, This is like a personal highlight for me. Tremper has written nine different commentaries on books in the Bible. He has published and edited in in, in some of the most uh, major biblical dictionaries around today. He has written countless other books which have been translated into 17 different languages. Languages, not to mention the fact that he is one of the main translators for the New Living Translation of the Bible and has been consulted with several other Bible translations. I wouldn't be lying to you if I said this guy is an expert and he knows his stuff. Well, I got a chance to ask him about one of the parts in the Bible that many believe tell us specifically about the end of the world. I can promise you, you won't want to miss that conversation. Uh, One of the ways you can uh, be sure not to miss these conversations is by subscribing to our podcast. So whenever they air, you will be the first to get access to them. And while you're subscribing, why don't you just go ahead and leave a rating and review to our podcast. It really helps get the word out so more people can get access to these kind of interviews. Well, I hope that this conversation today has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact in your life. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next week as we talk about the end of the world with Tremper Longman.